0: Morning. It's good to be back. Uh, it's been a few weeks uh, since I've been here uh, for the entire, actually a, a, a while since I've been here for the entire service and, and not driving from Mount Juliet to here. So it was um, just such a wonderful, uh, it, it was just so good to worship together. Uh, and I, if, if you don't mind, let's just pray again because that last, that bridge and that last, um, that song just so deeply struck my heart. So So let's pray for that one more time. God, I pray that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. Lord, that the things of this earth that can seem so satisfying, Lord that they would taste dull and bland. Lord, I pray that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours, that you would have us be excited, that we would be excited for the things that you are excited for. Lord, heal us, restore us, and Lord, we ask that you would do what only you can do in our hearts today. So Lord, as we dig into your word, above all else, may we cry out, Hosanna for you have not only come, but you are coming again. We give you praise, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, well, uh, NBC's hit series, This Is Us, recently wrapped up its second season, and and whether you've been watching every week, binging along, or are finally gonna watch it for the very first time, most of you have probably heard about the series. Uh, And if you didn't hear about it, uh, Super Bowl Sunday, probably after Super Bowl Sunday, is when you heard about it for the very first time. Uh, now, don't worry if you're not caught up. I'm not going to ruin anything for you. Fyi, the dad dies. Uh, in case you didn't know that, I think every episode he seems to die and come back to life over and over again, right? So, but you know, while reflecting on the passage for this week's message, is interesting because I couldn't help but think about Jack Pearson, the dad. Uh, and the impact that he literally has on every single person in the show. Here are a few examples. Although Rebecca, his wife, remarries, it's interesting because you never see her as happy or as carefree as when she was with Jack. In fact, every year on Super Bowl Sunday, the day he died, she prepares snacks and watches the game by herself as if she were with him there's this stunning scene when Kate was younger and she's singing to a tape recorder uh, and her dad Jack is filming her and initially she gets upset when she um, when she realizes that her dad is filming her she gets upset because she's self-conscious about her weight and and she just doesn't want to see herself on film but later on when she sees the replay of that video and watches the way that her dad smiles at her she goes to her dad and says dad Don't stop trying to make me see myself the way that you see me. Well, when Randall has a panic attack as an adult, there's a flashback to when he was a kid and the way that his dad and his dad alone just grabbed his cheeks, looked straight into his eyes and was able to calm him down. And Kevin, though at one point when he was a teenager, pitied his dad who went to AA uh, because he struggled with alcohol. And though Kevin vowed that he would never be like his dad, uh, found himself as an adult also addicted to alcohol with the DUI and in rehab. Well, I could go on and on, but I'd just be pointing out the same thing. The impact that Jack Pearson once had on everyone and continues to have on everyone, even upon people he never met. Do you have a Jack Pearson in your life? Do you have someone whose life and love so deeply touched you and to, to, and, and, and to the way that you think and, and, and that it's affected the, the things that you do and, and how you feel? Do you have a Jack Pearson in your life who has affected you to that extent? Are you a Jack Pearson to someone in your life? Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's, let's go to John chapter 4. If you have your uh, phones, let's uh, you know, open up the app because we're actually going to be spending um, the, the majority of our time reading through John 4, looking through, actually, the, the OG Jack Pearson, if you know that, uh, that, that term, the original gangster Jack Pearson, uh, actually, the better Jack Pearson, uh, the, the Jack Pearson without the flaws. Uh, The Jack Pearson who so impacted those around him that there was a ripple effect, not only in that town, as we'll read here in John 4, but also uh, his impact was so great that it actually reaches across centuries, ethnicities, borders, and barriers all the way to us here today in Nashville. So let's take a look at John chapter 4. We'll start from verse 3. He left Judea, uh, Jesus, Jesus left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, a few things are happening here. Typically at that time, when Jews had to travel from Jerusalem to Galilee, they would, take, uh, they, they would map out a route that would actually take them around Samaria through a mountain range, adding about a week's journey just to avoid Samaria. I mean, can you imagine how you'd have to feel about someone else to take an, a, a week longer for your commute? I mean, last week, my wife, I mean, literally, my, we travel, like we drove from Nashville to Toronto, and then, I mean, that's like, I don't know, I mean, it took us a long time. It took us like 16 or 17 hours. It was it shouldn't take that long, but I have three kids, so it took us a really long time. Uh, so we went to Toronto, and we were there for two days, and then we drove from there to Ottawa uh, to see Christine and his family. That was like six hours. I mean, um, I mean, I know it's faster to fly. It's just with a family of five, it's really expensive, right? So we, you know, we try to make the best of it. So we drove all the way to Ottawa, and then uh, we drove from Ottawa to Chicago, which took another sixteen hours. Uh, because I was, um, I had an event there for work, and then we were there for a couple of days, and then Saturday we drove from Chicago to Nashville, which is nothing, right? I mean, it's like eight hours. Like the eight hour, like comparatively, like seriously, if you ever get, if you ever complain about an eight hour drive, just do sixteen, and eight's gonna be awesome. So we're, I mean, it was, it was gonna be great. Like eight hours, it was gonna be breezy. We were gonna, like, we woke up late. We were gonna eat breakfast at the hotel. It was gonna be awesome. Well, unfortunately, the night before, I start getting, I, I start like feeling really nauseous. And I hate throwing up. Like I will resist throwing up at all costs. Uh, to the point that I will feel sick for days because I just can't throw up. Like I will try to throw up, but I just can't do it. So literally Saturday morning, not only am I sick and have some sort of stomach thing all night, but Christina is sick as well. So we drive from Chicago to Nashville, taking turns while the other one is passed out and you know visiting how, who knows how many gas stations and McDonald's, just trying to make it back here, and it took us a really long time, but, you know, the Lord was gracious, and, and we made it all the way back here. Okay, so, so think about this, right? Think about me going to, us going to, to Toronto, and then to Ottawa, and then to Chicago, and back to Nashville, right? I mean, that is in and of itself a lot of driving, but still, it wasn't a week long, like, I didn't go all the way to Alaska just so that I could go to Chicago, you know what I'm talking about? Like, I didn't go way I went exactly where I needed to go, shortest route possible, because I wanted to get there, even though it was a long travel. I mean, think about it. Jerusalem to Galilee wasn't a short distance. It wasn't like you were walking from here to Opry Mills, which, which would still be a really long walk, right? It still would, but it's not like you're, like you're going there. But the Jews at that time, from go, going from Jerusalem to Galilee, they would actually choose to go through a mountain range, even though they didn't have to, in order to avoid Samaria. How much anger and disdain would you have to have for someone else to put yourself through that? Right? And that's why it says in verse 9, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So when Jesus shows up and and he says that he has to he he must go through Samaria, right? As you see here in the first few verses, that he is compelled without option to travel through there. It's not solely because it was the fastest route from A to B. And yes, going through Samaria was the fastest route, but that's not why he did it because Jews didn't do that. He did it because he had an assignment from the Father. So when Jesus reaches Jacob's well just outside the city, we find him sending his disciples into the market to buy food as he stops to rest. Now, let's think about this for a moment, right? Jesus is stopping to rest, and he's sending his disciples out to the market to go buy food. It's not like Jesus is saying, hey, go over to Aldi, you know, go to the Nashville Farmer's Market and pick up a few things, right? These Jewish boys are about to purchase Samaritan food in a, in a Samaritan city that they probably don't even, even want to be in meaning that they'll be forced to interact with Samaritan business owners and ultimately benefit Samaritan businesses with their own economy. Like the disgust that they had for this other people group was so much so that they would, they would avoid Samaritans at all costs. And now Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to not only bless them, but give them money, spend time with them, connect with them, and get something something that none of them have ever done, nor have they been forced to do. It's something that was so antithetical to their cultural upbringing, but they had no choice, right? When their rabbi gives them an order or instruction, it must be done, so they go. So when they go, Jesus intentionally interacts with the Samaritan woman who comes to the well to draw water, and the time is around noon. Now, there are a couple of things that we need to also understand about this scene, right? Jesus, first of all, Right? It says that he's really tired. Right? We need to understand that Jesus is really tired. Now, I don't know, you know in verse 6 it says, Jesus was worn out from his journey, uh, which is why his disciples went to go buy food. And not only is he really tired, but it's noon. Right? So it's probably scorching hot. So I know it's been a while since we've been hot right here, unless you went to go you know, visit Mexico or, or, or whatever. So, but, but, you know, like scorching Nashville summer days, where it's so hot that air conditioning doesn't even feel good, you know? And, and it's just, it's so hot that you just don't even want to do anything. You know that feeling? Like, you just get so lethargic. So imagine you feel like that, and you're hungry. I mean, or hangry, as our family likes to say, right? I mean, it's like, it's not a good sight. When I'm like that, I don't know about you, but the last thing that I want to do is talk to someone else. Like, I just, I, like, seriously, all eyes are on me. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care that you, you know, son, I don't, I don't care that you're thirsty. You know how to go get yourself water. Like, I'm not, I would go get, your, get you water, but you go get yourself water. You know how to open up the fridge. You know how to do this. Just go. I'm just going to lie here on the couch, or I'm just going to try to fan myself because I am out of it. So when someone comes to draw water, right? Think about it here, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. When someone comes to draw water, if we were in that same situation as Jesus, water would be the only thing that would be on my mind, right? Jesus is sitting beside the well, and he's like, I'm thirsty. I need water. Do you think he would really want to interact with her or even think that that was something that is possibly an, an option, maybe if it was cool, maybe if he had a lot of energy, maybe if it wasn't noon, but just look, think about that situation. And add on, ta- on, add on top of that the fact that this lady, which at that time culturally, right, it was a lady that came to draw water, which at that time culturally was a faux pas and a no-no for Jewish men to talk to. And not only is she a lady, but she's a Samaritan. And on top of that, she's a lady Samaritan that is drawing water at noon, which means that she was ostracized from her community. I mean, this could all only mean two things. Jesus, number one, was either incredibly tired and didn't perceive any of that, which is highly unlikely, or he was incredibly intentional and saw this as an opportunity to show his love to someone who is searching for love in all the wrong places. As we read on in John 4, this woman is not only, you know, not only is she not married, but she is living with a man, and she had been married five times previously. In other words, she was considered a harlot, a prostitute, a woman of questionable character. That's why she was getting water at noon. She was rejected by her community. She was an outcast by the fellow. She was outcasted by the fellowship of the woman in the city. Jesus knows it. She knows it. Yet he interacts with her. In the following verses, we see the way that Jesus interacts with her too, right? And, and, and it, it helps us to understand um, that, that in his interaction with her, that he's actually trying to help her understand that what she's been looking for in all the men that she's been with, right? He's trying to help her understand that everything that she has been searching for in life and trying to find in other men... He's trying to help her understand that, that those things can never be found in another person. Right? He's trying to help her understand that soul satisfaction cannot be found in another person. That peace cannot be found in another person. That security, that success, that meaning, that identity, that, that hope, that none of these things can be found in anyone or anything else on earth, on this side of eternity. And that's why Jesus says in verse 13, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. Right? He's saying everyone who looks to the earth, or looks to possessions, or looks to another person for anything, for anything that will seem to satisfy, will get thirsty again. Everything. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, this water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. So after after hearing this wonderful good news, she responds in verse 15. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Now let's fast forward to verse 27. John 4:27 and see what happens when his disciples arrive, right? So John 4:27 just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, "What do you want?" or "Why are you talking with her?" Now, the disciples, as we read here, are amazed when they see Jesus engaging with this woman. But they don't say anything. They don't rebuke him. They don't correct him, which they had the right to do in light of the circumstances. Instead, they they see what's happening, and they're silent. They see what's happening. They're watching. They're witnessing. They're waiting because they know that probably something is happening. Now this is really important to grasp because if we are going to be if we are going to make disciples of Jesus, then we must also be learners of Jesus's ways ourselves. And what the disciples are seeing here is that Jesus's love knows no bounds and has no limits. That's what they are tangibly seeing. His love is unconditional. Jesus's love is for everyone no matter what you've done, where you've been, and what you ha- or what you haven't done. The disciples are seeing that following Jesus and, and living like Jesus will actually sometimes lead us into situations that are uncomfortable. That following Jesus, that living like him, will lead us into situations that sometimes we don't even want to be in. But it's in those situations that we see Jesus entering with both feet because he knows something that many of us are actually reticent of. He knows... That no matter how uncomfortable or dark or despairing this situation might be, the truth will set you free. He knows that there is no fear. There is no need to fear when dealing with darkness. There is no need to fear when conversing with those who are far from God because light dispels darkness. So with confidence... Let's follow Jesus into whatever situation he leads us into and trust that the Holy Spirit will teach us at that time what he should say. Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, the neighbors that are around me, some say they are Christian, others aren't. You know, I have Mormon neighbors. I have atheist neighbors. I have Christian neighbors. I have Buddhist neighbors. I have neighbors who profess a relationship with Christ, but they don't act it out in their words and in their deeds. And I have also who are passionate followers of Christ. Right? We have co workers like this. Right? This is Nashville, right? I mean, this is who lives here. When's the last time? that you prayed for them and that you engaged into a conversation with them. Not to convert them, but to engage in a conversation with them knowing that Jesus is wanting to work in and through you to bring his light and his love to them so that God would change their heart. You're not going to convince them. You don't need to worry about that. It's the Holy Spirit's job to transform their heart, to shape their mind, but what he wants to do is do it through you. Right? When's the last time that you prayed that you allowed yourself to be in conversation, to listen, to share with those who are far from God around you? Let's keep on reading uh, John four verse twenty-eight. Then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the man who told me, I'm sorry, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Now, I love this. After sending his disciples into the market where they probably didn't even want to go in the first place, Jesus tells them that he has food that they don't even know about. So the disciples are like, what? (laughs) Right? They're like, why'd you send me into the market? Anyway, I don't want to be there. And as we see in verse 34, Jesus says that him doing God's work, right? This is what he was trying to say him doing God's work, him being obedient to his Father in situations where he doesn't want to be, right? In situations where he is tired and has every excuse not to interact with this other person. Literally, Jesus had every excuse to not interact with this Samaritan woman. Every excuse. Cultural excuses, selfish excuses, environmental excuses. He had everything, yet, yet, he said, actually, you know what's more valuable than food? Being obedient to God and doing his work. Being obedient to God and allowing myself, allowing yourself to be used by God is actually more soul-satisfying and thirst-quenching than anything this world can offer. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that though this world is fading away, along with everything that, that, that people crave, when you do the work of God... And you do what pleases God. It says in First John 2.17 that anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. He's showing them what true satisfaction looks like. And, 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 and how complete submission to God's will and His ways is what actually unlocks life change and true contentment in life. Now it's fascinating, right? right? It's fascinating because we know that the things of this earth ultimately don't truly satisfied, right? I mean, you you know that, right? You know that because when you long for that promotion and you finally get that promotion, you know that you're not satisfied with that promotion, right? I mean, you want something else. Or yesterday, I was at the airport coming back here, coming back home, and and I, I ate a healthy choice at the airport, right? Salmon and broccoli and rice. Like, I so wanted to eat chicken wings, like for the last 24, like, all I wanted to do was eat chicken wings. And I was like, no, I'm going to do the good choice. I'm going to, you know, not fry. and eat the, and then and then, and then, and then, you know, afterwards I'm like, but I still want chicken wings. <laughs> so I like go to my gate and I'm like, oh, I don't want to go to my guy sometime. And, and I go to the, I go to the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the convenience store and I'm looking around. I'm like, oh, chips. And you, you guys know I love chips, right? I was like kettle cooked jalapeno chips. So I grab it. And I'm about to go out, and then I see, oh, but look, it's a healthy choice, pop chips. I know it's not that much healthier, <laughs> but I made the healthier choice, and I ate it. And I was like, oh, I just ruined the salmon, right? I mean, this, is like, this, is a, this wasn't a smart. And, and what happened after I ate the pop chips? I wanted chocolate, <laughs> right? And what happened after I ate chocolate? It was like all, like I, didn't, like, I didn't drink any soft drinks. Like, it was, it was I was, real, I, I, I did seltzer water instead of Coke Zero. And I was like, but it went all downhill. I ate Pop Chips, and then I had chocolate, and then I had Coke Zero. And then I, and I was like, this is, why did I even eat salmon? I should have eaten the chicken wings, right? <laughs> right, but, I mean, that, and then what happened after I ate I all that? I still wasn't satisfied. Right, you know that the things of the earth don't satisfy. No matter how appealing that they might seem and feel and look in the moment, they do not satisfy. Right. So, what do we do as followers of Christ? We're like, "Oh, I, got, I have to reject that." Right. I have to. I, I'm not so, okay. I, I understand that the things of the earth don't satisfy. So, so we reject them. What we do, what we what we fail to do is we fail to replace it with something else. And we just go in this constant state of, oh, woe is me. Look, I'm a martyr. I'm, I'm like, I'm refusing to satisfy my flesh. I'm refusing to do, oh, look at me. Look at how holy I am. And we actually live in despair. And, and, and the world looks at us and they're like, I don't want to live like you. Like, if that's how a Christian, is, I mean, no way. And what we read in this passage, right? Jesus is saying here, hey, my food, the food that satisfies, is to do the will of him who sent me. What he is showing us here is that true satisfaction is not does not come through mere denial of the things of this world, but it actually comes when we actively give our lives to the Lord, submit our wills to him, and live for him. And we live for him. And in moments when we maybe don't want to engage in a conversation with our neighbor or don't want to go there with our coworker or with our family member, going there and trusting that God is going to give us the words in those moments, that is what true joy and true satisfaction looks like. Because when that happens, I mean, the Lord is going to say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's, let's read on to see what he says in verse 35. Don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Jesus here is teaching his disciples that the harvest is plentiful and that there are so many people just like the Samaritan woman all over the world that need to hear the good news, that are desperate to hear the good news. We have this... I mean, recently Stephen Hawking passed away, right? And I mean, we there, there there's this um, there's this perception that we have as Christians uh, that that no one wants to hear from us, right? There's this perception that the media tries to portray about Christians that it's like, oh, if you're a Christian, uh, I mean, I mean, don't don't I mean, no, you're the minority, right? That that's what the media tries to portray, and and they're like, don't ever talk to anyone else about your faith because that's harmful and it's offensive and you're going to hurt them and no no one no one believes that anyway that that's the perception that the media tries to portray and that the enemy is trying to convince us of but there's a recent research project that that lifeway research did where, where they surveyed non-christians right they weren't surveying christians about their attitudes toward non-christians they were serving people who did not have a relationship with god and what they found was less than 1% of those who surveyed had this offensive hatred, this, 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 this attitude toward Christians. Less than 1%. We think the media is trying to portray that that's the majority, that that's what the majority of people believe. But less than 1% hate and are so vocal against Christians. Less than 1%. What the survey actually realized is that more than 70% Of non-Christians, if you are sincere about your faith, more than 70% would want to and be willing to have a spiritual conversation with you. More than 70%. Now, it's if you're authentic about your faith, if you have a genuine relationship with Christ. And the percentage was even higher with family members. I mean, just think about that, right? Doesn't that kind of flip things on Their head, we think it's 1% of our friends and our family members would be willing to have a spiritual conversation, and 70% are the ones that wouldn't, but it's actually flipped. It's actually flipped, and Jesus is telling us here in these verses that the world is desperate to hear the good news of Christ. He is helping his disciples understand that following him is not just about sitting at his feet and learning, but it is also about going. Following Christ is not not just about worshiping together as a church family, but it's also about going. It's not just about what we talked about over the last two weeks, to love God and to love others. Jesus is helping his disciples understand that true disciples, true followers of Christ lead others to love God, right? We have to love God. We love others. And true Christians lead others to love God. And look what happens in John 4, uh, verse 39 to 42, when we stop hoarding the love of God for ourselves. And that's what we're doing, right? if this is the extent of our relationship with God, and this is the extent, you know, we raise up Palm Sunday, hands, you know, Hosanna, right? Hosanna in the highest. And and, when we come and we worship God, and this is the extent of our relationship with Him, what we are actually doing is we are hoarding the love of God. It's like we found the cure to cancer, and we refuse to give it out and to share it with someone else. That is what we are doing when we refuse to lead others to love God. Now, it's great that we love one another here in church. I am so excited for the church picnic. Okay, like seriously, I got my Easter egg basket. Well, it's my son's Easter egg basket, but I'm totally going to be going around with (laughs) them, right? I, you know, I got my Easter egg basket. Sorry, my son has his Easter egg basket. Uh, you know we're gonna. I love picnic food. I mean, especially because there's a lot of chips there. And I'm just gonna like skip the burgers. I right? just go to chips, uh, chips and dessert. I, I mean, I'm so excited, and I love that as a church family, we are growing in love with one another, because us loving one another is actually one of the most compelling testimonies to the lost world, to this lost world that is actually at alarming rates struggling with isolation and loneliness. Like literally, there is a loneliness and an isolation epidemic that is higher and greater than it's ever been. Even though, digitally, we're the most connected generation. This, if, if we love each other well, that actually shows the world, hey, what, what are you guys doing? What's so different? And that brings credibility to our testimony and to our relationship with God. Right, let's, let's, let's look at John 4, or four uh, verse 39 to 42 and see what happens here. When, uh, Yeah, let's see what happens here. Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. An entire community was changed. A community whose trajectory was death and destruction because no Jew would ever go and witness to the Samaritans. Right? The trajectory of this community was entirely changed... Because Jesus went out of his way to have a single conversation with someone who he had every right not to, every excuse not to have a conversation. That single conversation, maybe there's a person in your life that by you sharing the love of God with them would set not only their life, but hundreds and thousands of people onto a different trajectory. Because Jesus embraced the opportunity to have a conversation with a stranger, an entire community was changed. There are strangers, friends, family members, neighbors and coworkers all around us that need to hear the same message of hope that the Samaritan woman heard, and it begins with a conversation. That's all it is. It begins with a conversation. That's all. You don't need to worry about the next step. Jesus is saying just take the first step and have a conversation. So who can you have a conversation with this week? doesn't have to be spiritual. It may turn towards spiritual means. Ask, you know, ask God, right? How many of you remember the BLESS acronym that we've talked about over the years, right? B, begin with prayer. I mean, what would it look like if every day in the morning, the moment we turned our alarm off, we went like this and we said, Lord, here I am. Lord, guide my every conversation. Guide, open my eyes Help me identify who, though, who, who I can have a conversation with. And just take that first step, right? Don't worry about what it's going to lead to. And if you know the answer or if you don't have the answer or, or what if they say something or ask something that you don't know, then say, oh, I don't know either, Let's study together. I don't know either. Let's look it up together. I don't know. Just be honest. Don't try to, I mean, that, the, <laughs> I mean the worst thing you can do is, is say that you know the answer to something that you don't and just fake your way through it. Because, I mean, you know when someone's lying, right? I mean, you know when someone's, you know, I don't want to say what they're doing, but you know, I mean you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> when someone tries to get through a conversation like that. Just say you don't know. Who can you have a conversation with this week? Right? Begin with prayer. And then after you begin with prayer and you have a conversation with someone else, the next letter is L, right? Listen. Right? Have a conversation. Ask questions and listen. Ask, do two-year listening. Listen to them and also ask God, God, God who, give me the words to say. I pray that you would direct this conversation. Show me how to love them as you love them. And then the next letter is E, eat. Right? We can all do that. Right? Right? Who can you eat with? Who, who is there some, who in your life that, who does not know God can you eat with this week? That you begin, that you saturate that conversation with prayer, that you listen while you're connecting with them, that you eat together with them. And then the, the next letter is S, that you can then serve them because opportunities will come up to serve because we all like talking about ourselves. Something will come up. Oh, I need to work on that new bench or I need, to, I need to fix that in my house. Oh, I can help you. You need some help. Seek to serve them. And when you do that, the last S is story an opportunity will arise for you to share your story of what God has done in your life, right? Who can you have a conversation with this week? Who can you bless this week? Who are you committing to pray for and invite on your arm next week to Easter? As we see with the Samaritan woman, when we meet with Jesus, not only are we transformed, but what happens is when we meet with Jesus, Right? As we meet with Jesus now, when we meet with Jesus daily, as we open up the Word, as we spend time with Him, when we meet with Jesus, Jesus not only transforms us, but everyone around us begins to experience that same transformation in and through us. Just like we see with the Samaritan woman. I mean, what if, think about this, what if the best thing we could do to lead others to love God was to actually love God and love others ourselves, right? What if that was actually the best way to do that? That as we finish and as we continue to worship, what if the best gift we could offer our neighbors was to wholeheartedly place ourselves before the Lord and worship with arms up, with arms raised, with hearts surrendered? What if that was the best thing we could do for our neighbors? To be right with God ourselves. And to say, Lord, I love you, I worship you, here I am. I don't know what kind of conversations I'm going to have this week. I don't know what I'm going to say or what I'm supposed to say. But God, I love you, I worship you, here's my life, do the rest. Please do the rest. I need you to do the rest. What if that was the biggest gift we could give this lost and dying world?